This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 246. I have the wonderful Dr. Maya Sheetreet uh, joining me today on plant medicines and teacher plants. Uh, if you don't follow Maya on Instagram, it is a real treat. Uh, there are so many doctors who give so generously and share so much knowledge, information, goodness uh, through their social media channels. And I would pop Maya in my top 10 simply because as a neurologist, a herbalist, an urban farmer, uh, and uh, someone who has trained in shamanics, uh, you never know what you're going to get and you always, always, always learn something. She is a true gift. You might have heard her the first time she was on the show where we were talking about um, the importance of nurturing our microbiomes uh, and her book, The Dirt Cure, which if you haven't read before, it really is uh, a joy to read. Uh, we have something in common, having both been through mold um, issues and water damage buildings and navigating that in a time where it was not quite as easy to find information as it is today. Uh, and we uh, kind of bonded over that. I got her on the show the first time. And of course, um, someone who is such a gem of a human has to come back a second, third, fourth, maybe even fifth time. Um, but I'm excited to celebrate five years of the Low Tox Life podcast this week. Thank you so much for tuning in over the years, guys. Um, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure bringing you this show every week. Uh, bar, I think we we don't do two weeks over Christmas, New Year. Um, and for anyone who's tuned in more recently and you're like, gosh, the topics really jump all over the place. What is this about? When I started The Low Tox Life, it was through a personal awakening of mine uh, that happened sort of from 20 years ago and onwards uh, around how we can connect to produce over packets of food, how we can connect more uh, to where our cleaning products and personal care comes from, how we can start to connect to nature as city people, because I have always been a very urban dweller myself. Uh, and then looking at the health of our homes, of course, through the mold journey and how important that is. It's almost like my life was unfolding with my own challenges to, to teach me all of these things at a time where it was really hard to find out about all of these things. And so starting Lotox Life was my effort to start to support people who also had questions, who maybe also wondered why they were so reactive, why there were so many issues in their own lives, in their homes, in their health, um, why their kids were so allergic to things, why no one could focus in the household, you know, all the things that we are affected by in modern life. And then, of course, the older diseases, the things that we start to become challenged by in middle age and beyond, uh, you know, we've normalized them because they're common, but it ain't normal. And so I really wanted to start a platform that looked at food, body, home, and of course, mind, because 
If we're stressed, that's going to kill us faster than anything else uh, in a chronic way, that is. And um, and The Low Tox Life was born and originally it was a blog and now it's a book, a website, recipes, social media and, of course, this podcast from five years ago. So thank you for leaving reviews and sharing little comments about why you love the show so much. I appreciate it every single time. And, uh, and I'm very, very happy to bring this show to you. You might want to join us in the Low Tox Club if you want to continue the conversation, be supported by fellow people who are passionate about this space. It's only $49 Australian a year. And uh, you can do that by jumping onto lowtoxlife.com clicking on the explore tab and then join the club will be the very first option you see there. And, uh, with the Facebook group that we have, we also have, uh, an ebook that comes out every month for clubbers where we dive into a different aspect of leading a low tox life in a more, uh, in a deeper way. Uh, for example, we've just wrapped up, uh, the meditation month and now we're kicking into a month of ferments. And with each month we have, uh, experts that come and join us and answer questions that the club members have put up. So it's much more of a very direct we want to know this. And so I get an expert in and, uh, and have that person answer things for the clubbers. And, um, I often feel really weird being 45 and using the word clubbers, but there you go. Uh, and it's a, just a really great place to be. You also get 50% off all of the low tox courses throughout the year, uh, as well by being a club member. So if that sounds interesting to you, I would love to see you there and, uh, I'm not going to waste another minute before hooking into this fantastic conversation on plant medicine and teacher plants. And we kind of weave all over the place in this uh, chat. It's a, you know, because I'm interested in so many things, because Maya has done so many things, who knows where these conversations go. Uh, she has been celebrated through the New York times, through NPR, Sky News, Dr. Oz show. She's really, uh, been able to get her message far and wide, wide, she teaches terrain medicine, earth-based training programs for transformational healing. Uh, she has wonderful uh, programs and courses that she does on um, plant healing for the gut. And of course, the new program that was much more recent is actually ushering people through psychedelics in a safe uh, and informed way. Um, because she believes, obviously, as a neurologist, that there is some really incredible power in microdosing psychedelics, but uh, does not want people getting the wrong information. I mean, you can have influencers talking about all sorts of things on Instagram and their experiences and personal experiences and people, you know, handing out ayahuasca flyers. And I, I think it's really important that people who are well-versed as um in, as medical practitioners, as neurologists, as psychiatrists, um, I had Dr. Dave Rabin on the show a couple of, uh, I think at the start of last year, talking about psychedelics and therapeutic uh, benefits to them in uh, a patient uh, practitioner context. And, uh, and I wanted to bring you this show where we could explore that uh, with Maya as uh, both someone who is very passionate about herbs, plants, and uh, spiritual healing, but has that neurological background in, in terms of her study, uh, and it makes it a very uh, safe and interesting conversation um, for a very, very fascinating topic that had gained so much ground in the research of the 60s, and then unfortunately, um, thanks to the war on drugs, 
got waylaid, but it is coming back and people are seeing incredible results. So if you're fascinated by this sort of thing, I would definitely listen to today's show. I'd also listen to the show that I did with Dr. Dave Rabin uh, last year, and I'll pop the details for that in the show notes. Uh, it's a very interesting topic. It'll be very interesting to see where we go with this as a therapeutic usage for people with anxiety, depression, psychiatric conditions, PTSD, uh, and more. So enjoy this show with Dr. Maya Sheetreet. Hello, Maya. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. As good as one can be in the fourth week of lockdown here in Sydney. Um, I'm very excited to speak to you today because as a part of this wonderful brain series today, we are exploring the magic of plant medicine. And I feel like I really wanted to have you on the show because it's been kind of like a a popular topic uh, on the interwebs. Um, but almost like popular in a fashionable sense. Like, have you done ayahuasca? I have. I've seen a guy here, you know, and it's become like a, a fashion box to tick. And I really think when we treat these extremely um, special, often dangerous if you're not guided in the right way, um, plants as a trend rather than a medicine as what they are, um, we can lose uh, really the real learning that I think needs to happen and can happen. Uh, we had the wonderful um, Dr. Rabin on the show last uh, beginning of last year talking about um, psychedelics in uh, treatment of depression and some really fascinating research. And I know that's something you're super passionate about as well. So before we hook into talking about those in depth, I want to ask you where your fascination with plants began. <laughs> because well, you know, boy, when we follow you on Instagram, you love a good plant. You love them all. You know, um, sometimes I think I was like, a plant in a former life, honestly. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, no, you know, uh, what I just find incredible, I mean, so I'm an herbalist uh, and a gardener and a forager. And that was before I ever started to really learn about teacher plants, you know, kinds of plants. Um And I'm just, I find it so incredible. I feel like plants are very much our family. And um, we've evolved together over thousands and thousands of years. And I think more and more, we understand in the Western world, in the modern world, that plants have intelligence and community and, um, and that they're really our family. Like we actually have a lot in common with the plant world. And so for me, this has been kind of a lifelong uh, relationship that I've cultivated maybe not understanding all of the science behind it to be um and i think med school kind of you know was a little bit of a detour but um what i love so much about plants and when i'm talking about plants i mean all plants are really allies to us i i give this example of last year we went on a, a quarantine trip you know road trip and um we went to this waterfall. I went with my boys and, um, and they got out of the car, ran across this area and basically got, must've bothered wasps or hornets of some kind. And they were just, 
they got six stings, like, you know, all over their leg, which is just, I mean, anyone who's gotten that kind of sting knows it's just excruciating. And I mean, it can be enough to not just ruin your experience visiting a waterfall, but really your entire trip of, you know, I mean, that would be it. And I ran out into the green where I knew there would be plantain, uh, which is not the, you know, yellow banana-like vegetable, actually, but but green leaves, you know, that are very, very um, commonly found and easy to identify, took, picked a bunch, chewed them, you know, my teeth were like green, whatever, it slapped it on all of the stings on both of their legs. And within 10 minutes, it was like, the like whole crisis happened. Wow. We, went, we enjoyed the waterfall, we enjoyed the rest of the evening, we enjoyed the next several days, and really had like a wonderful trip. And these are like, you know, we don't have that many treatments, even in conventional medicine, which we think is so technological and so advanced, you know, beyond, beyond. And yet, you know, what can we do that quickly that has absolutely zero side effects? Is that effective that you can literally get for free right there in the grass wherever you are? Um, you know, and so for me, that's like, part of my passion is this alliance and this kind of relationship and friendship, I feel that we all can cultivate with the green world. A hundred percent. And I, I remember um, uh, when I, you know, we've talked about mold before because one of your sons was affected and uh, one of the learnings that I had was around calming the farm, like really learning those plants that help you calm your system down when there is not necessarily any danger anymore, but the trauma pattern keeps telling you there is. And um, I came across the beautiful nettle, stinging nettle as a, an amazing calming plant. And I just so happened to have learned about that. And so I carried a nettle tincture in my bag. And my son out of nowhere has this allergic reaction to a piece of um, like paleo fruit toast that we were eating on holidays that turned out to have inca berries in it that it now turns out he has a severe allergy to. I mean, you know, talk about um, fashionable allergy. <laughs> it's like poor kid. I mean, of all the allergies to have, uh, yeah, I'm allergic to inca berries. Can I just check that out? <laughs> um, but uh, there you go. And I literally whipped the nettle out, gave him two big droppers full, and within half an hour he was absolutely fine. He went from red welts to completely fine, and everyone was like, what is that stuff? Like, I've got to know about that because it's so useful and so immediate, like you say, and so accessible. I could boil up some nettle and make my own tincture if I wanted to. Um, And so you mentioned there that med school was a detour. Why do you call it a detour? Well, I I just find that med school is very much in full-on immersion into a very particular worldview and perspective and um anything i'm not talking about plants or herbs or you know food i mean virtually anything that is not in support of that particular worldview and perspective is um you know met with total resistance and derision. (laughs) 
So, um, and, you know, on the one hand, I mean, there is a lot to learn, you know, is, I mean, the, the foundational aspects of, you know, anatomy and physiology and what we know about all these things, which, I mean, I'm a huge science geek and, you know, I think anyone who follows me on Instagram or who studies with me knows that I just can't resist. <laughs> you cannot. Geeky <laughs> about science and like, I'm really passionate about it um, on the one hand. So I was passionate about a lot of the things that I learned in med school, but um, you're not really encouraged to think outside the box or think outside their box um, or even to be curious. You're really supposed to be just absorbing exactly what they want you to absorb in the exact way that they want you to absorb it and kind of be able to spit it back out in the exact way that you're asked to. So that aspect of it, and, and the reason I say detour is because going into med school, part of the reason that I went to med school was I watched this, um, and I don't know if uh, in Australia, they have this Bill Moyers specials, but Bill Moyers is this amazing interviewer here in the United States who's done this for decades. And he did a special called Healing and the Mind, which came out around when I was in college. And I was like, wow, um, this is fascinating. Basically, they did a story about a little girl who had lupus and she couldn't take any meds anymore because every time she take her meds, she'd go into kidney failure. But every they'd stop her meds, her lupus would flare terribly. So they gave her castor oil every time, which is an herbal oil, mm. by the way. Mm -hmm. castor plant, castor I have beans. some on the shelf. Yep. Yes. Um, so do I. And um, <laughs> so they orally gave her castor oil, which is a little bit mean because anyone who has had castor oil orally understands it is not particularly good tasting, uh, to put it mildly. Um, but they wanted something really strong. So she would make an association. And then every time she got her meds, she'd get castor oil. And then they stopped giving her her meds, just gave her castor oil. And she continued to respond as if she was getting her meds, but without side effects. No more. Wow. And so I saw that special and, and the other interviews they did. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. And um, they called it psychoneuroimmunology. And I thought, yes. That's the thing I'm going to do. And I wrote a medical school essay, at least in part, about that. And, and they let me into med school, somehow let me into med school. <laughs> I'm sure they have second thoughts about it now, but, um, or third thoughts. But, but you know, once I, I went to med school, you don't really get to continue in that way of thinking, right? So years and years and years and years went by, my son got sick. My third, I had my three children over the course of my medical training. My third child, um, when he was a year old, started to get really sick. And that was the beginning of that whole story of his soy allergy and his mold exposure, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember saying to my sister-in-law at the time, I think I'm interested in diet and integrative medicine. And she said, well, you've always been interested in that. That's why you went to med school. And hmm. I was like, oh yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, that's the yeah. detour. Right? Mm. We do have these kinds of detours in our lives in all kinds of ways. Mm. And um, then these kind of strong, I would call initiatory reminders, right? Where we're like catapulted out of our normal lives. Yeah. And that's meant to remind us or to, you know, shine a spotlight on a certain area of our lives um, that, you know, redirects us. 
Mm. I couldn't agree more as someone who's moved house seven times in the past 15 months. <laughs> There's a lot of catapulting going on in my life, Maya. <laughs> Um, but it, it is all absolutely to shine spotlights on things. I, I totally agree. I, I think um, wonderful uh, friend, Dr. Jade Teeter, who's been on the show a couple of times as well, he says, not everything happens for a reason, but it's our job to make reasons out of what does happen um, because that really does help guide us and, and look inward and, and see what we might want to work on, develop, explore um, and evolve from. Uh, so yeah, what an amazing story about how your sister just casually kind of, yeah, that's, of course, that's what you want to do. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I need a pretty strong reminder. Mm-hmm. And so you obviously had extensive medical training, um, because you went on to become a ne- neurologist. What did you, when did you start to feel like uh, you really needed to go outside of that conventional training to add layers to your patient's treatments? Was it really quite immediate that you were like, okay, what I did in med school, it ain't going to be enough? Or was it a bit more gradual? You know, uh, it's interesting. I think it was less about realizing I had to go outside the box and more about, you know, this is my experience of my medical training, med school being, you know, really just the first kernel of it. It's really, you know, your internship and residency and then fellowship for those who continue their training. That really is where you're applying a lot of what you learn. So it was in that period that I realized that I had to learn how to really shut up (laughs) about my actual questions. I'm not even talking about I had suggestions or answers, but I asked questions that that people didn't like, (laughs) you know? Um, Like I remember we had all these like seizure patients and kids who had, um, and this was my pediatrics residency, kids who had neurologic issues. And I said, isn't it interesting that there are so many kids here with neurologic issues, but they really have significant immune dysfunction. And my, my attending and my resident were like, oh, like so angry at that question. Kind of ironic because A, I then went on to become actually an adult and pediatric neurologist. Um, and of them were that. And number two, I actually became a neurologist who specializes in the gut immune brain axis um, and wrote a book called The Dirt Cure, which is all about that kind of relationship, right? So, but that question was so enraging and like agitating, you know, like, oh no. And I felt like it made me really learn, right? If you want to survive in that system, and I think many people can relate to this, even if they're not in medicine. Uh, You know, you learn how to stay quiet or as quiet as you can. I mean, how much can I really stay quiet? But, um, you know, you learn how to not kind of keep your head down. And so really that's what I was doing for a long time. And I think what really more happened was, um, and this was the part about my son, right? That was when I really, recognized or began to truly recognize what, you know, because he was sick and he was having breathing issues and welts and all kinds of things. And I was taking him 
to colleagues. I was taking him to the gastroenterologist. I was taking him to the neurologist, my own colleagues who knew me very well. I was taking him to the allergist and everyone kind of poo-pooed his issues. Nobody took it very seriously. Um, he was quite sick all the time. And so, you know, and the pediatrician who was very well-meaning and loved him, prescribed tons of oral and inhaled steroids and inhalers and, you know, antibiotics just constantly. And um, I was like, this isn't cutting it, you know? And that was even, I, it wasn't that I was so holistic at that moment. It was just like, this makes no sense. Like, what are we even treating right now? Yeah, exactly. So that was like, and then I was going into private practice out of my fellowship and I, everyone was suggesting, you know, they were all talking about, okay, you're just going to be basically prescribing stimulants to small children the whole time that you're in private practice. Is that really how you want to spend your time? And I was like, why would I be prescribing stimulants to little kids all the time? Because we do that in our training. It was a more like acute care, you know, serious illness kind of training. And they said, well, because that's what people want. You know, everyone, everyone's going to come with, you know, questions about ADD and you're going to be just prescribing stimulants like candy. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm not going to give like this kind of strong medication to little children with developing brains if I can help it. So then I started thinking, okay, like, what do I have to do to really support these kids to not need that, you know, so that will be not the first resort. And so, yeah, then I just went wild from there. <laughs> <laughs> Monkey got out of the cage. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I can just imagine how how soul-destroying that would be and how um, tragic it is that so many lights get put out in those residencies with those questions initially, like the one you had. Um, I mean, of course, we should be looking at why their immune dysfunction might be contributing to the neurologic issues. Like, I mean, I'm not even a doctor. I'm just a critical thinker and I just, you know, completely agree that you should start that line of questioning. And that, uh, that to me highlights this current but the science um, kind of cry that a lot of people make, which I believe is actually uh, underpinned by fear. No matter what side you're on, you're scared at the moment. It doesn't matter. I'm always in the middle. Um, and, uh, and I see both sides playing things out and you see but the science on one side and you see the other side saying, trying to explain, but the science is never decided. It's never stopped. It's never like, okay, we now know everything and this is how we're going to do it. That is not what science is by nature. So if as a doctor, Maya, you could please give us the definition of what science is and, uh, and maybe even just share an example of when we knew something and we thought we knew something, but then we learned another thing and now we know this thing. I mean, First of all, you know, the thing I would say about science for me, and I'm obviously, you know, combination science, scientist mystic, um, so my answer will reflect that. But actually, I think many, not to say I am a great scientist, but many great scientists, and we can go all the way to like Pythagoras, but, you know, also Einstein and also Tesla and, you know, many others were actually kind of closet mystics not even closet mystics, you know? So, um, you know, what I would say about science is it is a language, one language to describe the mystery of the world. And 
so the way that I think about science is you really must be in beginner's mind. You really must be unattached to outcome because science is really more like a description than it is. It's more about questions than it is about answers because it, it, as you said, it's always evolving. And this idea, this, this, um, I really discourage these, um, what are they called? Like mottos or things that, you know, have been like, I believe in science, you mm, know, exactly. Yeah. Is like, listen, I, I am passionate about the language of science and the pursuit of, you know, asking those questions and the kind of conversation we're in with mystery when we want to um, understand particular aspects of the we're a world that's invisible to us in many ways, the visible and invisible world. But this idea of believing in something, you know, or using it to further certain ends is really wrongheaded, I think, because science is not something to be believed in. That's dogma, you know, and that's like a kind of almost like a religious belief in something. And that is actually I think because, and this is a great segue, I think, into um, talking about psychedelics and plant medicines because, um, you know, we, I think there is a thirst for connecting to something more spiritual that isn't necessarily like organized religion, like we'll set that aside. I don't think that necessarily feeds what I'm talking about. Um, but that connection to something greater and a lot of people, because we've been conditioned and socialized to believe that science is a socially acceptable way to be connected to mystery, many people kind of put all their attention and eggs in that basket rather than having other means to connect with kind of the world beyond what we can see kind of with our with our naked eyes. And I'll say one other thing about that, if I may, which is that this idea of large scale studies, I just, I have a strong opinion about it. And um, I'll share, please I'll share it, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, I think as much as I see the value of kind of this evidence-based medicine and the large scale, you know, randomized, double blind controlled, you know, uh, trials that are 60,000 people or 100,000 people or that kind of thing. Um, so there is value and statistical power to that. But what it has done to kind of um, venerate that way of, of engaging with science is that it's led people to disregard what they see with their own eyes. That means if you see someone in front of you with certain symptoms that you have not seen described in the scientific literature in a large study, it doesn't mean it's not real. It means it wasn't funded. It means no one asked that question. It means it wasn't published. It was rejected you know, by peer review or by the journal for any number of reasons or because the funders of the journal um, who are usually pharma, right, disagreed or, or on and on and on, right? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not true, but how many people have gone to a doctor, let's say, for example, said, I'm experiencing this. And they say, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. We've, we don't see, I don't, that's nowhere in the literature, right? <laughs> it's like, 
wait a minute, the hi, I'm here right in front of you telling you about my lived experience. And sometimes the doctor is witnessing it and it's like, I can't, you know, and it's not just the doc doctors that do that, but like, this is really what's cultivated in medical training and in the medical world is like anecdotes are, are useless, right? So um, I think there is a way in which even when we talk about science, who can fund those studies? The only people who can fund large scale studies are corporations and the government. So those are the people, those are the entities, I should say, that are responsible for almost all acceptable science. So it's just important to have that context to know who's asking the question and why that's being funded because even though I deeply am passionate about science, we have to be so careful not to confuse scientific studies that are published um, with being like that relationship with mystery, right? That like your relationship, um, you know, with, with the natural world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like no government or uh, corporation is going to fund a 60,000 person study on um, wasp stings and plantain leaves. Like it's just never going to happen. And so an antihistamine drug though will be uh, t tested and studied for 60,000 people and double blind and yada, yada. That's, gonna, mm. right? That's about return on investment. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And we have to remember that in a world that was basically decided by GDP theory, how success was going to be measured, which is growth and financial profits, um, that the entire world is therefore calibrated in that way at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really valuable to have that in the back of our minds. And I don't think that that makes it conspiracy. I don't think it makes us, it doesn't have to make us cynical. It's just about having a fuller awareness of how to interact with that material. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, psychedelics, for example, um, do you call all psychedelics teacher plants? Um, well. Or is teacher plants a bigger definition? So teacher plants are a bigger definition than that. And actually there are psychedelics, let's say LSD, uh, that would not be considered a teacher plant, really. Um, whereas there are teacher plants that are not necessarily psychedelic, like um, like coffee, you know, um, would be a teacher plant. Very powerful plant. Coffee is, I mean, who who has not heard of coffee in <laughs> almost the entire world? Most people have, right? So that gives you a sense of the, the power of that plant, you know. Um, cannabis technically is not a psychedelic, although I do have a psychedelic program and I teach about cannabis in it um, because cannabis is a teacher plant. And so I feel like, you know, there is a way in which it's worth discussing. Uh, but yeah, so and then, you know, let's say mushrooms are technically not plants, right? So, um, you know, there are many examples of teacher plants, though, like the poppy, you know, um, which is a very potent uh, teacher plant with very potent medicine. Um, the coca plant, similarly, also a potent plant, not a bad plant. None of these are bad plants. It's sometimes what we do with them as human beings, the way we interact with them, not coming in good relationship with humility, um, that can cause, cause us problems, but those yeah. are teacher plants. 
Yeah. Okay, cool. And, um, and so when we look at psychedelics then as a category, uh, I was looking back through the decades and was quite fascinated by the fact that in the 60s when, you know, like when the Beatles were experimenting and it kind of became part of the zeitgeist to talk about these experiences that they were having and try and have them oneself, um, a lot of research actually started to happen around this time into the medical benefits of these plant experiences um, for mental conditions. I was shocked that they were actually quite advanced in the research decades ago and then the whole thing got shut down. Um, largely it seems, and you might be able to correct me or per- shed some more light, because of the Nixon administration um, starting to crack down on drugs as like just a whole category of plants um, and substances. Um, It seems like we've just wasted so much time on learning some really good stuff. Well, um, (laughs) a lot of things to unpack there. I know, sorry. (laughs) I was just so interested when I was researching it. I thought I really want to hear as you know a researcher and a a doctor and um, a mystic yourself like must have been interesting to come across that yourself yeah absolutely and when I teach about this I always go into that uh, you know I go into kind of the origin story for the for the kind of western world uh, modern world I should say or the colonized world maybe um you know, with psychedelics, because actually, I mean, you know, it was was a very big thing in Los Angeles among movie stars and writers and kind of the, um, you know, the intellects. Um, Cary Grant, in fact, did a whole interview in the end of the 1950s, having done more than 60 sessions of LSD. Wow. And he said, um, you know, that he was born again. He said, I'm no longer lonely and I'm a happy man. and it was considered to be a normal adjunct to talk therapy at that time. And they did studies like um, 1967, I want to say, uh, a review study was published um, and they found that therapy, therapy plus LSD over like a 12 year period in, you know, the maybe 20 something patients was 70% effective for anxiety, 60 effective for depression and 40% effective for OCD. That's 1967, I want to say that was published. So yeah, it's been around a long time. Um, Part of, you know, the beginning of cracking down on drugs, there are a lot of reasons that that happened. It had to do with kind of uh, flexing against know, the younger generation and kind of the, you know, demonstrators around the war. And also um, it had to do with really, um, you know, a lot of racial, uh, you know, racial um, prejudice and, you know, kind of wanting excuses to be able to go after certain To put that emancipation back in the box, basically. Which, which it did and other presidents and United States presidents kind of continued. But um, so that was very much the case. But, you know, and I guess I hear what you're saying very much about that kind of like, how did we lose all that time? Uh, and it's definitely been underground. I mean, it has not disappeared. People have still 
been all along, you know, engaging um, underground. But um, but absolutely, I mean, you know, I think I think for me, these plants have their own consciousness. And so the fact that they're emerging in such a big way tells me that in some way we are ready now in a way that we weren't ready before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And um, how would you like to share about each one? Like, do, do we want to just talk about a few different uh, things that are working in the research now that we're starting to bring back that you're starting to teach on, guide people on? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, so psychedelics are something actually technical. There's a technical definition that is not, um, you know, that is not um, just everything that causes us to have hallucinations, not necessarily considered a psychedelic. And it has to do with how they interact with our serotonin receptors. Okay. So that's just important to know because for example, MDMA, which is getting a lot of press and there is research now on MDMA is not actually technically considered a psychedelic. Just right. as in, yeah. It's different. It doesn't, it doesn't make it not effective. It doesn't mean the research isn't important, but in the context of psychedelics, it is, it has to do with um, serotonin receptors being stimulated by DMT and, um, and, uh, very particular serotonin receptors being stimulated. And so um, some of the things, there are, are many, many psychedelics that stimulate that 5-HT2A um, receptor. LSD is considered to be a psychedelic. Um, uh, psilocybin, uh, Amanita muscara, which is the kind of the little red, red, red mushroom with the white spots that are kind of oh, the... Yeah have, you know, of Santa Claus fame, I guess mm -hmm. I would say, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's sort of, um, you know, that's sort of well-known. Um, ayahuasca, another one that right now also has a lot of attention. Um, San Pedro cactus is another one. And then there are certain animal medicines as well, like Iboga and, you know, certain other ones that are, um, you know, that are also stimulating in that particular way, mm -hmm. um, which is based in tryptamines. Okay. Right. And when, um, we'd look at some of the major mental, um, health challenges, uh, anxiety, depression, OCD, um, it, I was looking at how happy people were with their treatment plans on current and conventional protocols. And I was absolutely shocked to learn that it was as high as 90% of people are not happy with the progress they're making on their current protocols, um, SSRIs, et cetera. Now I'm not telling anybody to stop their medication on this show. That is not what this show is about. It is simply to raise awareness on um, a, a growing definition of options and what might be available as this research starts to firm up and become more widely accepted uh, to know that maybe we could push that 90% right down and actually start to have a high percentage of people who are having uh, effective treatment experiences. What are you seeing in the research? What kind of work are you doing? Conversations are you having that is going to help shape a, a different 
um, statistic for people's health outcomes? Yeah, you know, um, first of all, I just want to touch on the safety uh, because a lot of people really worry about that, you know, hear about it and, you know, we should remember, and I'm so happy that you said, I mean, this for me is, I don't think that psychedelics are for everyone or should be for everyone uh, at all. And I actually think that psychedelics um, you know, and I coach people who are, let's say, microdosing, which means they're taking a sub psychedelic dose of, let's say, a psilocybin mushroom or things like that. I've coached people through those experiences um, in terms of like how to get the most out of it. Um, I don't, you know, they obtain it. I'm not supplying it, obviously, because we're not at a time in, uh, you know, uh, in terms of like the legal system yet, although there are places it's being decriminalized um, throughout the world and in this country and it's being researched, psychedelics are being researched in almost every major academic institution in the world right now. So why are psychedelics getting this kind of research um, behind them? Is it <laughs> is it quite profitable if it does well? I mean, I think it could be, right? Similarly to cannabis, there this idea of this isn't something that's easily accessible to people right now, um, to, to the average person, let's say. And, um, you know, if we can, if, if corporations in some way can control it or the government kind of has some way to control it, then there could be a lot of money to be made. I, I suppose, I mean, I would like to believe that it's because what we're seeing is that just psilocybin, we can even just start with that. That's getting the the lion's share of the research right now um, although there's some really beautiful research on other other things like ayahuasca as well but psilocybin has um really beautiful safety studies so and large scale you know governments have done safety studies and um they're simply psilocybin is is very safe for almost everyone physically um it doesn't increase risk of suicide. It doesn't increase risk of addiction. It doesn't increase risk of almost anything um, except the main, for me, the main um, caveat is I, if someone has psychosis or a family history of psychosis or are on medications, certain medications, for, um, for depression, like SSRIs, for example, uh, you have to be extremely, extremely cautious. And so I would recommend any person in one of those scenarios on psychiatric meds or serotonin related meds, someone who has psychosis, history of psychosis, or has had family members with significant psychosis, um, for example, you know, those would be people I would be reluctant to recommend from a side effect standpoint okay that does not end does not mean i recommend this for everyone but um the the research on psilocybin in terms of what sorts of benefits people can experience what sorts of treat um uh, conditions it can treat include things like uh anxiety uh treatment resistant depression okay They've gone through all the meds, you know, and they still don't feel better or they're suffering from a lot of side effects from the meds or what have you. OCD, addiction is a huge one. So 
the studies on addiction are are mind-boggling truly i mean alcohol smoking cessation there are incredible studies and it's a durable change meaning you know uh six months later you know this percent of people who stopped smoking entirely still did not start smoking again, which is really almost unheard of any other kind of treatment. Um, so addiction is another one. Um, it's been looked at in people who are dying and who have a severe fear of death. Um, and that was, you know, those are some really beautiful studies is like, how do we help people um, feel comfortable with that transition? when they have, you know, when they, they know that they're going to die. And the, the vast majority of people who participated in that study felt at peace. Um, which for me is like, that's the you know, send off you it, want for everybody. Right. Mm. Yeah. I and mean, just, so that for me is really, um, you know, really beautiful and important research. And when research actually is exploring things that are so um, needed (laughs) and you're really addressing the kinds of suffering that people really have, um, you know, that feels really meaningful to me as as an MD. So there's some really beautiful studies. And what I want to add to that is that we are, so I have a course on microdosing, on the benefits of microdosing and um, the science, and we're seeing a lot of burgeoning um, data on what microdosing can offer. It seems that microdosing may offer, so sometimes when you flood receptors in a particular way with macrodosing, okay, so you're having a full psychedelic experience with, you know, whatever might come along with that, that's macrodosing. You know, there are certain things that really shift and change right away in this five or seven or, you know, whatever period of time, that, that hours. Um, with microdosing, it might happen over time, but it seems that there are certain receptors that are more activated when the doses are very, very low versus when the doses are very high. Um, so we're getting into kind of technical, mm. you know. So it's a yeah. less is more kind of vibe. Beautifully put. Mm. And um, so, and in those cases, it seems like uh, people are finding um, anti-inflammatory benefits. So like people who have severe migraines or clusters mm-hmm. or um, asthma or autoimmune disease are finding that they are having significant benefit. I had a patient who had um, actually really significant cardiac issues actually following getting her vaccine mm-hmm. um, in her case, and she experienced improvement um, after she was able to microdose. Wow. And so it it just sounds like anyone can grab it on the street corner and jump in and do your course. Like how is it uh, in Australia? It just seems like you are so cut off from any kind of exploratory options. Is it something more freely available in the States? How does it work? Does someone have to go into their doctor and be approved to microdose? Um, So no, it is not that accessible here. Like Mm -hmm. I said, in academic, there are many academic studies where it is accessible, and then there are certain cities, and in one case, one state, um, Oregon, where it has been decriminalized. That does not make it legal. It means it is 
um, lowest on the list of priorities for law enforcement. So your chances of being you know, pursued if for some reason you're caught with it, which would be a felony in the United States, you know, so the chances of you being pursued or prosecuted are like nil, okay? Um, so that's what's happening here. There are not, there are definitely decriminalization movements going on in every state. And I think we're gonna see significant changes here um, over the next five years, let's say. But no, it's not something that is that easy to obtain. Um, the difference is, right, as with cannabis, I suppose, um, you know, people can can grow it or people might know people who grow it, right? And so people always have a way of kind of finding um, the people who, I mean, this is the thing about criminalizing nature, you know, is that it's nature and there's, I mean, not that I'm recommending this to anybody, let me just be clear, but like, it's possible, you know, to find psilocybin growing out in the wild. That is like a thing that many people discover, um, you know, on the regular because they're part of nature. So you're not gonna necessarily find a cannabis plant just randomly growing, you know, in the woods, but you may find other kinds of, you know, like psychedelic mushrooms, for example, that is possible. Again, I'm not necessarily recommending, I'm not recommending, in fact, that people are searching for that, I wanna be really explicit. Um, but yeah, so it's not something that's widely available, but, you know, people are able to obtain it um, and um, in certain cases. And so um, I think also that there is a sense of, as it's becoming decriminalized, you know, you can go to another state and legally obtain it. And, you know, so these kinds of things are also happening. And I'm sure that will happen, you know, in Australia and in other places as well, as this kind of, it's a domino effect, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I've been interested in psilocybin. Have you come across anyone recovering from um, mold or with long-term SIRS who has benefited? Um, so, I think um, I think that um, for psilocybin, I've seen people who have microdosed who have had those kinds of symptoms, but I think mm. it could be possible. I mean, nobody's looked at that yeah. in academic I research. I think it would be fascinating because, uh, as you would know um, very well, one of the it's almost like a hangover from SIRS. You always have these weird neurological things, whether it's a dysregulated stress response, um, where something isn't scary, but your nervous system decides that it is. Or for me, I just still have the odd twitch or a little spasm. Um, and they just, you know, it was much worse when I was living in water damaged buildings. But um, it's almost like you want to kick the bucket on the last couple of symptoms. And I have been really interested in uh, exploring um these incredible medicines for that reason, not necessarily even for my myself, like, oh, I want to jump in there and try it, but just curious, you know, just looking at what's happening and, and what research is coming out and what people are um, finding, really. Do you want to talk about, oh, let's talk about ayahuasca. Sure. So, you know, what's really interesting for me about ayahuasca is that um, there are some really interesting papers coming out looking at um, the mechanism of ayahuasca. So 
For those who don't know, ayahuasca by itself doesn't have psychedelic effects. It needs to be combined with another plant. And together, um, the plant with the DMT and the ayahuasca together have a lasting psychedelic effect. But what we're learning about ayahuasca, so many people, you know, people talk about things like ayahuasca as being, you know, um, 10 years of therapy in five hours. And, you know, I do want to say, actually, in this conversation, um, that the experience of psilocybin or ayahuasca um, can be really intense and sometimes terrifying to people it you know and and it can be wonderful for some people too but um it's really you know from my standpoint and the reason that i teach my my course on psychedelics is because i want people to understand the science the safety uh the sacred but also to understand things like how important preparation is, how important set and setting are, like, you know, the environment you're in, the people you're with, the, um, you know, whatever you might source or have access to and how you integrate afterwards. Because this isn't just like any old thing. And I'm concerned as someone who, you know, understands the history of teacher plants and the way that we've abused them um, excited about them. And then, you know, things like the opium pot, you know, poppy, things like the coca plant, right. That have, that have truly destroyed people's lives because of the way that we were not in good relationship that I want, really want people to understand how to, how to build this relationship in a, in a healthy and sacred way. Um, so that said, what's really interesting about the ayahuasca plant in, in this uh, research that's kind of growing is that um, what we're finding is that it is affecting um, not just the serotonin receptor, the particular serotonin receptor, but also uh, a chaperone protein called um, SIG1R. And SIG1R is, um, has many different kind of protective influences in the body and especially the brain. It is a neurorestorative. So it, it's responsible for synaptogenesis and myelination and neurite outgrowth, which means it's enhancing connectivity in the brain, um, building new connections to places that there may not have been connections before, and it's actually increasing myelination. So if we know there are certain conditions, mold autoimmunity can be one of them, but also multiple sclerosis and others that are demyelinating. What we're understanding is that by stimulating the SIG1R in this particular way, it actually can remyelinate. Um, it modulates tumor cell proliferation. So when the SIG1R is appropriately stimulated, it can actually turn off uh, cancer, you know? essentially. It's immunomodulatory. It affects calcium signaling. It affects mitochondrial function. It affects apoptosis. Apoptosis is programmed cell death. So it's actually part of the survival mechanism of a cell under stress. We've talked about cell danger, right? And we've talked about that in the context of mold in the past. And so um, what it's doing is it's protective in kind of setting. And this, so dysfunctional chaperone protein, just as an example, 
are associated with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and cancer and cardiomyopathy and retinal dysfunction and um, traumatic brain injury and ALS and dementia um, from HIV and depression and addiction. And so understanding this science, it's like all of these epidemic illnesses that we really don't have, we really don't have good treatments for. As you said, right, there's, it's not that there aren't any treatments, but the treatments are suboptimal, right? They're not healing people. They're not even treating people, as you said, to the level that makes them feel like they're at even the level of function that feels good to them. They're not yeah. satisfied. You know, yeah. people don't necessarily need things to be perfect, but this isn't even to the point that they feel it's satisfactory. Exactly. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. And that's so many diseases. And so um, how does ayahuasca then become something that isn't an underground, like little pamphlet from a hippie woo-woo uh, blogger situation to kind of go to some special retreat and how do we actually make it um, safer more um, and more holistic like really um, how do you find a guide that can help create the connection piece that's so important to when we experience these medicines because from what I've heard speaking to different people over the years who have had the experience it is very hit and miss who you end up with um, and how you end up having your experience. Absolutely true, all of that. And I do want to add that with ayahuasca, there are many, many more conditions mm. that are contraindications. Thank so you for sharing that. Yeah. To begin with, right? So psilocybin is a little bit different. Mm. Ayahuasca actually... Um, is much more as you're as you're hearing is mm. much more biologically active mm. and you know kind of neurologically active in certain ways so um that's just something to consider mm -hmm. you know yeah. Um, yeah. going into it um and usually they're you know so this is this is what's complicated alex is these are all um sacred plants mm. and indigenous communities have many practices around how to prepare to use them, how to prepare the plants themselves, the relationship you have with the plants. There are, you know, people who go for a week, two weeks of doing what we call a dieta before drinking the ayahuasca brew, where they're not eating many foods, not having sex, not using any drugs, not smoking, not, you know, smoking cannabis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like the whole a whole way of approaching mm. um, process. So, um, so this is complicated. How do we, you know, we're asking something really fundamental and you see, it was a lot easier for me to answer what is science. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> me to answer yet. How do we really integrate this? And of course, everyone and his brother and sisters, like, you know, running to, you know, put ads on Facebook about, you know, let me teach you about, mm -hmm. let me, you know, I will show you how to be a therapist for. And on the one hand, that's exciting and heartening and optimistic. And on the other hand, I really do worry mm -hmm. for the reason you said that um, you have to really, to be a good guide, 
you have to be willing to do your own inner work as well. I want to tell you something interesting, though, about psychedelic experience. Mm. Um, this is in the case of psilocybin, but if I bet if we looked at it in ayahuasca, which is studied far less so far, yeah. there are studies looking at depression, there are studies, you know, and, and showing improvement. Um, so it's out there, but it's not quite as, you know, it hasn't sort of exploded in the research world to the same degree yet. But with psilocybin, the people who experience, many of the people who were in hospital studies, I'm talking like Johns Hopkins, you know, mm. uh, who were in these studies doing, you know, their, their um, five hour macro dosing experience, okay, yeah. their journey, they had a sitter, right? There's a person in there trained to guide them, but not really guide them because mm. your job's guide but your job is to really just um reassure reassure yeah you know and just be um like just be gentle and make sure they're safe right that's really mm. what the job of these trained people um was and what they found was many people even the people who had very difficult experiences said it was one of the most profound experiences they had in their entire life mm -hmm. okay number one but also the sitters who were not taking the medicine said it was a profound experience for them wow. and they had it to have changed their view of the world they felt totally changed by the experiences simply by being there that is how potent these plants are oh i just these got gooseies are, mm. right that they can they can they're not it's not just about changing and this is why i also Tell people you don't even always have to ingest the plants and you don't have to have the psychedelic experience necessarily. You can, you know, I have in my, I have from communities in Peru that I love very much, um, necklaces of ayahuasca that I even ha have sold on my, on my website for people <laughs> who want to start to build a relationship with the ayahuasca plant. And they, people find that it's very powerful. It changes the way that they feel. Mm -hmm. That is the nature of these plants, you know? So um, how do we integrate the sacred into our incredible, rational, linear, clinical, scientific world? Um, I think we're gonna have to blow it up a little bit. Mm. You know? And I mean, I'm working on a book right now and it is sort of intended not, it's not, specifically about psychedelics, although I will be discussing psychedelics, but part of the purpose of the book is really how do we integrate the sacred yeah. into this world, you know, this rational um, world that really worships at the altar of a kind of science that isn't even truly always science in the way that, you know, we discussed it. Mm. Yeah, it's more inquiry and um, curiosity of what is mystical and what is not yet known. Right. And that's the beauty, actually, of psychedelics. So um, I, you know, if we if I may talk a little bit about what um, kinds of uh, what happens neurologically. Yes, please. Psychedelic experience, mm. um, you know, so it actually um, we have a network in the brain it's called the default mode network and it's actually responsible for our um our ego it's the what we call the me network okay mm -hmm. yeah and so um and and it's very important because it it's important for um the 
our autobiographical memory. It's important for the narratives that we create about who we are and our sense of identity and um, self-reflection, okay? All of these sorts of things are what the default mode network does. And the, the default mode network also, so it, it represses, um, it represses emotions and kind of traumatic childhood traumas, okay? So emotions and memories and things like that are, are repressed. It represses our limbic system. And um, so what happens when you uh, have, um, well, and, and psychedelics are not the only way to shut down this default mode network, I would like to add, okay? There are things like deep experience, you know, deep regular meditation and breath work and, um, you know, extreme sports and, you know, like other, other kinds of things can shut down this default mode network as well. But when it's shut down, okay, um, what it does is it actually helps create new narratives for people. So they have a kind of death experience or they can, right? All of those things, you know, the stories you tell about yourself and um, who you think you are and the kind of self-reflection you have are all kind of imploded for a little while. You experience first of all, a sense, a mystical experience in many cases where you, you are connected in some way that you didn't see prior that you're connected, that you felt isolated in this little kind of um, box that you were in, you know, we call it like the meat sack, right? But actually it's something much broader, right? And suddenly we're able to see it in a whole different kind of way. Um, and so, and new connections develop. So we can make connections that are connections we couldn't have made before. And we start to see things with new eyes because those narratives that we had, you know, so you walk into a room, you see a few details, everything else you're filling in from what you already know, okay? That's a phenomenon called predictive coding. And so it shuts down predictive coding. So now you're seeing everything you see rather than filling it in with stories from before, suddenly you're seeing what really is quote unquote, I mean, right? And, and so now you're able to create new narratives and understand yourself differently and get out of these kinds of rigid ways of thinking, right? Yeah, okay, and can I ask, so different to then having to take a pill at a certain time every day, this provides, it sounds like, a more lasting effect, um, correct? Yeah, it absolutely can. And um, for many, right. So this isn't like, um, this isn't like, oh, you have to do this every week or every day or something mm. like that. Um, you know, and I do want to add something um, about, so, you know, there is duration to it for sure. And for some people, I mean, it's transformative long-term. That's it, mm. right? Um, there are people I find who get, I think if we're not, mindful mm. um you know, they get kind of um attached seduced to that almost yeah thing, okay and they do you know want to pursue it frequently um rather than saying well let me do you know maybe maybe there's integration work and maybe you know if i'm doing it like every few days for you know or like mm. you know, once a week for years I'm not saying that's a terrible thing because I can't make that judgment really. Yeah. Um, but I think there's the possibility as with anything that, mm. you know, 
we always want to be careful to be in good relationship. Um, and just because we hear all these good things and kind of get to have this window, um, you know, into something greater and maybe into a different version of ourselves, um, the real job, and I think I recently posted about this on um, Instagram, actually, and it mm. kind of blew up because I think it did resonate for a lot of people. Our real job is what we do before and after. It's yeah. actually not the experience itself. And I think it's so important because we like this idea of like, we're going to have fireworks and, you know, it's going to be this, <laughs> oh my gosh, like blow me away and everything's different. And, you know, this yeah, is that's like the Hollywood version of it, right? Yeah. Right. Or the teenage version. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, rather than really like, okay, the window was open, mm. the door was open. You've seen these things. Now, what are you going to freaking do? Mm. <laughs> right? Because it's really like, how are you going to apply this? And how are you going to live when you're not, you know, engaged in this constant relationship instead? Right. And that speaks to what you're talking about. Like, no, you absolutely don't have to, you know, necessarily, um, take these medicines or drink these medicines again and again and again and again. Mm. Um, but I think it, it's, it's kind of like seeing an inspirational speaker and then not doing anything from like, you know, you, you get that after, after glow of seeing someone really inspiring and thinking, gosh, yes, you know, I'm going to bring this into my life and nothing changes. And, and so the integration piece, and you've mentioned that word a couple of times is what, um, is really lacking. I think humans just need to learn. Sometimes we need to learn how to do the work again and not just expect instantaneous change. Yeah. And I think from the pharmaceutical industry in its way, you mm. know, um, has, I don't want to say, I think it's conditioned people, but I think we've also been willing participants yeah. because we like, you know, people like, no one wants delayed gratification if they can have like immediate mm. gratification, right? I mean, you know, so, um, you know, but I think people do want that like magic pill idea. And there are ways that psychedelics do have that um, kind of cachet about them. And they do, the science is really interesting and um, optimistic. And so, yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it is about doing that work and understanding that that's kind of what life is, right? Mm. Is you know, we get to have these windows and doors open for us. We see things in a way that maybe we didn't see them before. And that can happen in lots of ways, not just through psychedelics. And then our job is to, to live it, you know, mm. to live it out in a certain way um, and apply it. And that's really the task. And so that's why I do this coaching mm. um, is, be, is exactly for that reason. And I do integration therapy with people, not really therapy, but coaching yeah. um, after they've had experiences, because sometimes the experiences, you know, again, can be very difficult and confusing mm. or, or, um, you know, like you could think, Ooh, like I'm here to save the world, you know? And like, it's really important to have conversations with people after that, because many people might have that kind of idea. And then they're like, Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay. Like, no, yeah. It's not that it's that I need to do X, Y, Z and do this in my life. And you know? that's what this looks like for me in my life right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. So we've talked about a couple of really big um, 
experiences there, but most of us are just living everyday lives in the everyday world. What are some plants that you believe we can have powerful experiences with that you could share um, as we wrap up our chat today that people can have access to right now? It's probably in our kitchen. I'm going to guess at least one of them is. Um, And start developing a, a deeper connection with the medicinal aspects of plants. So in one of my, in my certification program, this is actually one of our final assignments is to actually choose a, you know, plant or an animal that is something you have familiarity with in your day-to-day life that you might encounter and to build a relationship with that Mm -hmm. plant animal. Um, And so it's just funny that you're asking that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll say, you know, if I want to play into this might be in your kitchen right now. Um, I would say something like cacao. Oh, I'm so glad you said cacao. Yay, my favorite. Tell me what to do. (laughs) So, well, I'll say, so cacao, I think coffee Mm -hmm. can also, right? These are things that we can do sacred ceremony with. Mm. And I want, I, I truly, you know, if people take one thing away from this whole entire, you know, very wide ranging conversation that we've had, yeah, I would say one of the most potent and important things is that um, this is not just the plants doing the thing to you. This is about a relationship. And we have that kind of relationship that is transformative with plants that we can access, different kinds of um, plants that are, are not necessarily the kind of fireworks types of plants that still have messages and wisdom and are transformative and people do sacred ceremony with like cacao like coffee like kava which is another one right and all of these are things which are teacher plants and change the way we feel for periods of time and then we have a very transformative experience when we come in a sacred way and build a relationship come learning about it right so reading about it and learning about it, spending time with it. Sometimes if it's a plant you can grow, you can grow it. Um, I grow an ayahuasca plant, not for consumption. I grow San Pedro cactus, not for consumption, um, but to have a relationship with the plants. So, um, and then there are all kinds of wonderful, you know, if we're talking about what's in your kitchen, for example, you know, turmeric is incredible. Turmeric is one of the most potent anti-inflammatories that we know of. And it's beautiful. I add, I mean, my family's Moroccan and I add turmeric to virtually everything. everything. Yeah. Um, you know, cayenne is actually incredible for circulation and for pain syndromes. Um, so I adore cayenne. Again, I add it, I think, you know, it makes me a little fiery as a person, maybe, but <laughs> You know, cayenne, cinnamon is another mm-hmm. one. So cinnamon is like, um, and you know, you know that these plants are potent because we use them in small amounts. Yeah. Uh, but cinnamon is something that stabilizes blood sugar mm-hmm. in a really powerful way. Any patient that comes to me who has blood sugar issues or metabolic syndrome or obesity or di- just diabetes type one or type two will definitely be going on cinnamon mm-hmm. in my practice. So, um, you know, we have sacred, all of these plants are sacred plants. And, oh, and I'll say one last one, holy basil, Tulsi. Oh, 
Um, my favorite tea. Oh my goodness. It is so powerful. Yeah. So Tulsi is, is considered so sacred in, in certain communities in India that the, the pot, if the pot breaks, that was holding the Tulsi, they will save the pieces of the pot. Um, that's how sacred she is. And uh, Tulsi is an adaptogen um, and a nervine, a calming nervine. So settles the nervous system, um, stabilizes blood sugar. I mean, there's all kinds of physiology, um, and, you know, and really tonifies the whole endocrine system, you know, hormonally, in all different kinds of ways. But Tulsi also has that uh, sacred element. And um, so for the people who are like, well, I can't access all these kinds of, you know, um, psychedelics that you're talking about, create ceremony with things like kava, cacao, coffee, tulsi. Um, there are even sacred tea ceremonies with, you know, things like, you know, certain black teas. Like there are ways to make, to bring the sacred into the ordinary and have and have real transformations and i've seen it many many times mm. and does the transformation come from the fact that we're actually honoring and holding space for the magic in the plant itself is it is it that basic or is there a mystical element i mean is that not mystic it's <laughs> mm, pretty mystic yeah now yeah. that i say it out loud i'm like yeah that's mystic <laughs> i mean the idea is, you know, for me and in the paradigm, as I understand it, that these plants have consciousness and they're intelligent and they're, they're teachers. Um, so for me, when you hold space or allow yourself to be in, to build that relationship, to cultivate intimacy with a plant, any plant could be rose. You know, it could be the rose, it could be a uh, lavender, right? I mean, it, but but any of these plants, when you start to cultivate that intimacy and open the conversation, then you begin to understand that there is this universal language that has no words. And I believe that it's a language that we once all spoke, uh, that we understood and spoke, and that we're in a remembering of that language. Oh, I believe it, Maya. I just recently, I remember I've started and I just noticed it in myself. I had a sip of Tulsi tea and I always do, do like a lot of really strong mix. And I had a sip and I was like, oh my gosh. And I just said that to myself and it started to be this thing that I said to myself, oh my gosh, because it was just that first sip and it was such a moment instead of just making myself a tea, sitting down, not thinking about the tea, getting on with an email. I had to have this little, oh my gosh, moment. And, um, and so I just want to say to people who are maybe not um, super experienced in creating mystical sacred connections with plants, just start to notice. Um, that's certainly what I've done since starting to follow some of the things you talk about so generously on Instagram. I mean, you know, never mind even doing one of your amazing courses, but like to just connect with your work and how much you share um, can start to give us a window into how special these things that are all around us all the time are when we, it's about choosing really to start making that connection quite consciously, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's sort of that idea of if you open the conversation and show that you are ready to open mm. that conversation, 
that you'll start to have those kinds of moments of wonder and awe. Mm. What a beautiful place to finish on quite an epic, long-ranging, wide-ranging conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I always knew it was going to be that. Um, Thank you, Maya. I love the work you do. Um, People can connect with your incredible first book that we talked about uh, last time, The Dirt Cure, and, of course, jump onto Instagram and, and join Maya's community there because she shares a lot and then you can hear about the other ways you can connect. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low-Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.